Welcome to the Lancefield on the Line podcast. To those of you who've joined for the first time, and welcome back to existing listeners. It's great to have you all here. My name is David Lancefield. I'm a catalyst, strategist and coach, working with CEOs and their teams to make them even more extraordinary. In this series of interviews, I look to get under the skin of the world's leading executives, entrepreneurs and management thinkers to give you lessons, tips and habits that you can use as you lead your team and organisation, whether in relation to strategy, innovation or organisational culture. In this episode, my guests Paul Leinwand and Matt Money, senior partners in Strategy and the strategy arm of PwC, open the lid on what transformation truly is. They say there's more to transformation than digital, hence the title of their book, Beyond Digital. This is a stimulating, immersive discussion, which will leave you with a new manifesto for leading your organisation, based on in-depth research of 12 stellar organisations, including Microsoft, Adobe and Philips. You'll hear them talk about the critical importance of staying close to your customers, especially to benefit from their privileged insights. They'll also talk about what's shifting towards a promise of outcomes really means for your organisations. Also, what Jeff Bezos said about innovation, which may surprise you. They also challenge us to think differently about what ESG and metaverse really means and what you should do about it, and how market research is overrated. They also call out a new social contract at work, which is far more than creating an inclusive environment. They even say which one of the seven leadership archetypes they set out in their book, they are. Paul and Matt are lucid, highly credible, as big hitters in the consulting work world and great researchers, and they're committed to sharing their wisdom and experience with us. I do hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Welcome to Lancefield on the Line. I'm here with Paul Leinwan and Matt Money, authors of the book, which I have right here, Beyond Digital, How Great Leaders Transform Their Organizations and Shape Their Future. I have read it, digested it. There are even tabs on the side of it for the, for the special bits I particularly enjoyed. You are both senior partners in Strategy and, and former colleagues and friends of mine. Wonderful to see you again. Paul is the global managing partner of Capabilities Driven Strategy and Growth and the co-author of three other books and numerous articles. And Matt is the global leader of PwC's transformation platform and the global relationship partner of a major client of the firm. Paul, I think you're coming in from Chicago in the US, if I'm not mistaken, and Matt is coming in from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and you are both most welcome to the show. Thanks. And just a reminder, David, my last name is Money, like the green stuff. Indeed, I got that wrong. Thank you. you know, we're we're like going to focus to like on value creation in this, in this exercise. So we are going to talk about feedback. That's what you get in strategy and in between partners, former partners of the firm. Good for you. Um, we're going to talk about transformation, uh, strategy, leadership, and what it takes to succeed in, in the context we're operating now and in the future. I love the book, not only the, the beautiful cover, but the, the depth um, of the book, the, the, the depth of research, the call to action, the challenge to conventional wisdom, and I reread a number of passages. There's a sort of personal, very personal element to the book, which you often don't feel, I feel in some other business books, which is we've got to change now. We've got to take a new lens on making bold decisions and 
shaping shaping our future. So I credit you for both. Well, I'm going to ask a simple question because you um, it's quite a provocative book in in many ways. So you say that digital is not enough. Are you the you like anti digital people? Has the term become passe, irrelevant when it comes to transformation? Matt, you lead everything transformation in PwC. Tell me. I won't say that it's become passe, but uh, what I will say is that uh, I think, quite honestly, uh, our profession as consultants have been quite shamefully used this term digital transformation as a bit of a red rag, you know, to get people excited about. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I think that uh, that is really irrelevant and, and something we shouldn't be doing because it's not as though there's a magic pill called digital that if you swallow suddenly you know explode your company's valuations and help you succeed as we lay out in the book i do think for being honest about it what we're really talking about is the fundamental transformation of business itself of which right. digital plays an important part yeah. Yeah. you shouldn't exclude it but i certainly wouldn't want to focus on solely that ever again yeah there's the obvious that one element is the obvious side of the human element isn't it you know you have a new emerging tech it's used deployed in the organization you sort of simplistically expect people to just use it and, and without support help enablement change right so i i, I lord that paul you, you're dying to come in it's uh, it's great to be here david and uh and with with matt as well i have to say what, what often happens is we we always get the kind of latest right trend um digital is not a trend digital has been around for a while but if you think about digital esg even now the metaverse, right? The kind of next version of digital. Mm. We see executives and we see organizations really focused on what are they going to do next? How are they going to respond? What is everybody else doing? And what the companies in this research really reminded us was these things are great, but we should be focused on how do we have to add value in society? And then those are tools rather than thinking of them as pirate ships that keep coming in and we need the next chief something officer to go help us go figure out the metaverse. Like the metaverse could be extremely helpful within a value proposition to come. Yes, because it often then can be simplified or reduced to sort of single initiatives, the AI initiative or the blockchain one, et cetera. So you talked about, and I talked about shaping the future and taking a bold view. Sounds eminently sensible, but then we look around us both now and in the immediate term, you think things are uncertain. There's a degree of fragility around us. There's a lot of complexity. Um, how do you actually do it in practice? How do you move from, I know I need to shape the future to actually let's step in and do it for real if you are a, a leader in an organization? Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll jump in here, Matt, uh, and, then, uh, and then build a little bit. But I think the best place to start is, you know, what challenge for your customers or for society is this organization here to serve? You know, what value do we create? What would happen if we disappeared? Um, how do we create that unique, relevant positioning in society? And that's where something like ESG can be so incredibly helpful. So rather than ESG being another thing to do, how does ESG enable new value? There's all kinds of problems that we need organizations to solve. And so we want people to step back and really reimagine their future. That was the first imperative in the yeah. book figure out what are they going to become? How are they going to solve those problems? And what do they have to do to transform themselves? And, and that, I guess that, that, 
Yeah, please, Matt. Yeah. I just want to jump in and say, I'd add to that, you know, there's a great quote that we include in the book. It's not one that was exclusively really given to us, and it's from Jeff Bezos. And he says, look, you know, people often ask me about well, what, are, what are all the trends, what's going to change, but I seldom get asked about what's not going to change in the next 10 years. Mm. And I think that's really important that all businesses, you know, take that question on. Well, what is it that is going to remain relevant and uh, anchor their value propositions around that? And there are plenty of big problems that in society and that customers need to have solved. And when you start to anchor around that, that brings clarity to how you deal with the, you know, quote unquote, fragility or the other issues that you yes. may be dealing with. I guess that relies that relies on having a, a, a deep relationship with your existing customers and consumers and 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 the trust of future ones to, to, to talk. And you talk about privileged insights, which I love that term and love the concept. Tell me a bit more about what that means, because that feels like an important enabler to help you not only perform now, but um, reimagine a brighter future. Well, there's, you know, David, really no mechanism to stay relevant and shape your future without really having this connection with customers. And that doesn't matter whether it's B2B or B2C. I mean, you've got to understand where are customers going? What are the challenges that they have? And the old days of just market research, like market research is a wonderful function, but really market research is creating, for the most part, undifferentiated insights, right? That other companies could get. If I do a survey with a thousand people, the next person could do that survey. And the companies in this research really reminded us that Privilege Insights is about information that customers are giving you directly when they trust you, when you're delivering outcomes. Hmm. And they're not just giving you that information because they want you to learn. They're giving it to you as part of exchange in an experience, something that they value. And I think every organization can do better in this dimension. In fact, many of the companies in the book that we said, wow, they're doing great with Privilege Insights, they're improving those capabilities as a mechanism to learn more. You touched on outcomes there um, and delivering or enabling an outcome for a customer is a bold promise. It's a much closer relationship. It's a higher risk proposition as well. Um, how big a leap is that for, for organizations? That you, you deal with, the, the organizations I read are pioneers in many senses, but for other organizations, they're hearing a lot more about outcomes. Your firm is talking about my firm still, if I'm allowed to say so, my firm is still talking about you know, outcomes. It just feels like a big leap if you've been a traditional product or service organization. How do you, how do you move closer to an outcomes orientation? Well, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is around moving towards an outcomes oriented organization, meaning you've got to shift also how you operate uh, as an organization. I mean, clearly you can't just say, you know, magically wake up one day and say, right, you know, we're now gonna be about outcomes <laughs> and off we go and expect your old functional matrix organization to somehow digest that because it's just natural. People's, uh, uh, you know, tendencies for competition and all those things will, will come up. So a big part of the how is um, orienting um, around either a specific customer problem or outcome you want to achieve yes. or a differentiating capability and then bringing people together in your organization and enabling them to work together in what we call outcome-oriented teams. So these are teams that are deliberately multifunctional, bringing together, let's say, people from engineering, finance, IT, sales, et cetera, right? 
and teams that are are uh, not temporary, but you know where you can actually have a career. So where if you go into an outcome oriented team, you know that you're not you don't have to be worried about um, pleasing your functional boss because the next role you get has to be within your function. But you're really focused on solving that particular outcome, and then you may have a career uh, path that takes you perhaps into another function or maybe yeah. into another outcome oriented team. And I think that's a big part of the of the how, of how you shift your organization. And of course, the things you have to do around that to enable it, like, you know, changing career paths and incentive models and, yeah. and so forth, which, you know, a lot of these companies that we profiled have done successfully. So it really can be done. And that's a big shift in the workforce as well. I mean, more generally, because there's a lot of debate at the moment around what does hybrid working really mean? How do people, that, that, and you talk about this, the social contract with people, with the firm. if you shift to an outcomes model, it relies on a lot more trust between people and sort of pushes away old sort of industrial age mindsets of management, which are around effort, input, you know, roles, which you still need to a degree, but that's a big shift, right? So I guess what you're saying is this could be an enabler for more progressive, inclusive, higher performing cultures of organizations too, right? We are, but I would go further to say that it's, um, I, frankly, my assertion is that reinventing the social contract with your people is not about necessarily having a progressive organization or doing a better job attracting millennials. I mean, that's nice if you, if you want to do that and you should do it. But uh, I believe that even if you're the most inveterate capitalist and all you care about is your own profit margin, you couldn't care less about anyone's feelings or, or, or their experience at work that um, you need to still reinvent the social contract with your people because in order to compete today, you have to compete on the basis of capabilities. You have to compete on the basis of being better able to deliver an outcome for your customer than your next closest competitor. And the Mm -hmm. only way you do that is actually by putting people at the heart of it because you will need your people to respond quickly to what's happening on the front line with customers. You'll need Mm. them to collaborate very fluidly. Mm. You'll need them to own and drive the transformation. Yeah, yeah. You cannot just do it from like sort of command and control model. So if you don't actually invest in that, uh, you're certainly not going to be able to earn your share, fair share of profit, let alone, of course, have a great workplace where you engage people and where people want to be part of something. I love that framing. I love that picture. Sounds exciting. Great place to work. That was focusing on, if you like, internal collaboration, but I guess it also plays a role in terms of external collaboration. And you you focused on ecosystems. And many organizations that I, I work have worked for or still work with, when you say, oh, you know, are you an ecosystem player, like an orchestrator, for example, or a complementer? They'll say, no, not really. And then you actually map out their relationships, and they say, actually, ecosystems are fundamental to our, to our value creation. Um, I'm curious, Paul, in particular relation to the strategy practice and, and leadership mindset, how big a shift is it moving from, if you like, more of a closed, verti- vertically integrated business to one that's operating in a world of ecosystems? Is it evolution or is it more of a revolution? I think it's more the latter, David. You know, let's take an example from from the research. You know, Komatsu, and I think we all know this organization. We've seen their equipment, you know, potentially on construction sites. Um, but this is an organization that stepped back and said, "There's a bigger problem to solve, right? I mean, we can rent equipment, we can sell equipment, but if you look at a construction site, 
There's a lot of inefficiencies. We've got labor challenges. We've got safety challenges, timing. And so they took that problem on. But of course, they couldn't take it on independently. They had to set up an ecosystem. They had to get information shared between lots of players, small and big, in order to improve the effectiveness of a construction site. But that's a big deal. That's not just saying, I'm going to have a new vendor or I'm going to have a new supplier. That's saying, we're going to share information even with competitors, which yes. they do, in order to improve the outcome to the customer. What I love about that example is it really brings together many of these elements that we learned in, in this research that are in the book, right? New promise to customers, new ecosystem, learning that privilege insights point you made, and then rethinking all the internal mechanisms to actually serve that goal. Hmm. And I guess it, in terms of the internal mechanism, that it also includes the role of leaders and how you share leadership more openly. And, and I guess the paradoxical roles that leaders play. And um, I love that part of the book, which um, I always look at myself and think, well, which one am I? Am I any of them, to be honest? So a simple question to both of you, actually, in a nutshell, this is the quick fire round. Which of those six roles do you think is the hardest to master from your experience of having worked with leaders all around the world? Matt, you go first. Well, I'll just speak for myself. Uh, for me personally, uh, it's the humble hero. Uh, because, you know, uh, I've certainly been trained and raised in the model of you need to be the strong leader who drives from the front of the room and inspires the troops and rallies them around it. And that's still important. But equally for me, I have to remind myself that uh, as a leader today, uh, one of the biggest strengths I can contribute is humility and knowing when to step back and, and acknowledge that I don't have all the answers and empower, enable other people to actually show me the way. Uh, and that is something uh, I can tell you I'm working on every day. I'm sure Paul will tell you I'm not doing a very good job at it, but I'm, I, am, <laughs> I am working on it. Well, I appreciate not, the, not the candor and disclosure. Feet, feet. <laughs> not sh shy of giving feedback, Matt. I think you're you're a great example of a humble hero. I, I think in looking at executives in general, David, one of the real challenges is the strategic executor. Um, you know, I think we learned, right, that we had the visionaries and then we had the operators. Um, and people were almost trained in those environments, right? How to think big thoughts and come up with a future, but how to actually get it done. And I think it's hard to find leaders that possess the ability to kind of span both. They exist. I think in the 12 organizations that we studied, we certainly saw that. Um, but that's something for people to reflect upon. You know, can you step out? And by the way, it's needed everywhere. Maybe 20 years ago, you know, we didn't need as many visionaries, but we need visionaries, but we also have big problems to solve that aren't going to get solved just by issuing directions, as Matt described. Um, we need people to go figure it out. So part of this discussion about leadership is recognizing your strengths and not necessarily having to fix everything, right? Yes, mm. there's probably improvements you want to make in these dimensions, but it would be very difficult to be excellent at all of these. But build a team around you that can balance some of those strengths and weaknesses, that can work as a team to solve these big issues and can change the discussion to drive a company rather than just respond to the company. So there's a lot to be done in this leadership mm. dimension, um, I think, for everyone. You just ripped up the rule book for performance evaluation in many organizations there, Paul, but I, I like that concept. No, you haven't. I'm being, I'm being provocative. But the, um, on, the, on the leadership front, um, I guess the, the one question I have is distributing responsibility, empowering people to make decisions in, in as part of the, if you like, the day-to-day -day execution of the strategy. 
sort of easy to say, but you still need to keep a grip, if you like, of the 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 intent of the organization and some of the rules that could be around risks and so on. How do you find people balance the two between being empowering and encouraging people to, especially people on the front line, to solve issue customer issues as they come, whilst at the same time giving clear boundaries on how, on, on how and where they play? Well, look, I, I think, first of all, that's the job of a leader at any level. And I don't just mean this for the, you know, topmost executive in the organization, you know, even if you're, um, you know, a leader on the frontline team uh, in a factory, let's say, which is, you know, to to set the vision, to set the tone for the organization, to give people something to work towards and, uh, and, and you know, give them a direction. But then from there, empower them to go work against that direction, to figure out how to solve the problems, you know, within that that broad framework. So um, I don't think that fundamental role of leadership changes. You still need to have that compelling vision. What's the problem that we are here to solve? Uh, You still need to provide the the guidelines for how you do it. Uh, But then what does need to shift is how you enable and empower people to then go take that problem on and, and actually propel your organization forward. Hmm. Well, you, there's a quote which I took from your book, which says that, uh, which builds on your point there, Matt, which says, aspiring to shape the future is part of our character as business leaders. Avoiding incrementalism is where real leadership is required. I, I think that's brilliant. Um, so I'm curious just to build on your points there of how, what sort of, what does it take to make bold decisions? Because again, it's easy to say, but in the heat of the moment, especially now where many businesses are under significant commercial pressure, some are doing very well, but some are commercial pressure. There's difficult people issues to deal with. They're still in systemic crises, depending on where you are in the world. What does it take for the leaders that you research and you work with to not just know about making bold decisions, but actually make them in practice, Paul? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Let's take another example. Um, you know, Philips, right, which is a wonderful story of a large organization, historical organization that decided that they had a different future. And their future was not just in healthcare, but in actually really impacting, you know, millions, in fact, a billion lives um, to improve the basic nature of how people get health and healthcare. And that's a bold mission. And you could state that, but to your point, there are many vehicles to making that happen. And and their leader really had this expression of like, you can't just transform, you can't just perform, you have to perform and transform. And that is a really important way of thinking about the challenge. Yes, we have a lot of problems of today. Yes, we have fires that have to get put out. Yes, we have leadership decisions and we've got targets that we have to meet but we have to carve out the time to address some of those hard decisions. And as a leadership team, work on them together. I think many leadership teams are essentially there kind of as individual representatives of their business or function. Yes. Um, We saw in these 12 organizations, these leadership teams were solving problems. They were working on the future and they were carving out the time and setting up governance so that they could actually get there. So there is a lot to the leader and the leadership team and the bold aspiration, but there are mechanics here that can help organizations really make those decisions and put them in place. Comes a lot down to um, where they focus their attention and how they mine the collective 
power of, of the teams. And this is very, I find this a very moving, empowering conversation. This is not, frankly, just an analytical process. This is about the purpose of people, organizations, and their place in the world. I mean, that, and that comes through both this conversation and the book. And I guess it also means that as you're shaping that future and making those bold decisions, you're clear about what you bring from the past. I mean, you, you say, I quote, legacy has a valued place but the the new simply can't thrive in its shadow. And I guess I've seen that with, there's often a drag from the old organization and so on. How do you, Matt, Matt, perhaps, you know, how do you master that moving to the future whilst making sure that you bring the best bits of the past? How do you manage that dynamic? Well, you know, one of the things that I found inspiring in, 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 you know, frankly, all of the companies that we got to spend time with is that, uh, the way they shaped their future was principally shaped by feedback from the market, from customers. They, they got interested in what customers had to say about what their needs and interests were. In fact, one of the companies we uh, spent time with is Adobe, who's literally shifted their entire business model to be based on what are they hearing from their customers about uh, their experience of, of using their products and services and uh, their desires and needs. And they've changed even their incentive model to how responsive are they being to those uh, those yes. insights. Even their whole governance structures are, are put together in such a way so they actually do spend time looking at those insights and making decisions against them. So I think that's a very powerful way to get aligned on, okay, what where do we need to be relevant? And customer feedback also tells you, well, what is it that you do that's great that we want you to keep doing? And that really helps you then sort of shake out, okay, what do I carry forward versus perhaps what I need to leave behind? What I love about this is that you, you're both doing this for real. You're not just writing about it. And what comes across both in words, spoken word and written word, is that you both care about the cause. Uh, it just, just comes through and that's, that's moving. Um, it's an enriching topic. This is a stimulating conversation which, as we draw to a close. What one message would you give to an emer- let's call it emerging leader in an organization faced with a lot of opportunity in front of them, a lot of perhaps baggage from the past that they're aware of but don't want to be saddled with, but also a context which is brimming with complexity. What's your one message for them? I'll start. I'll say, you know, don't uh, forget about the things that aren't going to change. There are a lot of big issues that need to be solved. Get oriented around that and become a zealot for the outcome that you can enable around solving those problems. And when you when you focus on those outcomes, that'll help you put everything else together the way you need it. Brilliant. And the, uh, the maybe one thing to add to that is, you know, build an incredible team around you and not just an incredible team that you think will follow what you do, but bring diverse opinions and perspective and strong ideas about where the future is headed. That will really enable the right discussion and the right experience for that leadership team going forward. Here, here. I couldn't agree more. Fantastic. Matt, Paul, thank you for your time, your candor, your wisdom, your energy, which I've loved. And that was another edition of Lancefield on the Line. Please do subscribe to the podcast and to the YouTube channel where you can check out other great interviews. And thank you for your time.